Welcome. This is Why Life Is. I'm Niles McFlower. Tonight, hey, we're going to have another great show dealing with metaphysics and spiritual issues and some elements of science as well and uh, physics. Um, part of the physics issue is going to be dealing with time dilation, and uh, a lot of what tonight's show is about is connected to that. Now, what is tonight's show? It's ongoing human relationships on the inner planes. And uh, by the end of tonight's show, you'll understand, I think, why time is such a big factor in this uh, show's topic. (laughs) It gets a little complicated, and we'll try to make it as simple as possible. Now, uh, as usual, I'm going to try to define some of the uh, elements that we'll be dealing with tonight. And the first thing is when I talk about the inner planes, I'm talking about planes of actually greater magnitude in dimensionality than the ones that we are familiar with, which is right here (laughs) in the physical world. And some people also talk about the electromagnetic part or the etheric part of this world. That's all one world, one dimension. Now, beyond this dimension, uh, there are other other dimensions. And uh, we live in three of those or two of those other dimensions beyond this one. And when we uh, change our consciousness, the focus of our consciousness, and where we're going to live our life, literally, our consciousness focused and on our life in another dimension of time and space, we are actually there. Uh, Most of the time when this happens, uh, people are actually dead from this world. It is possible to experience uh, these other dimensions of time and space uh, without dying. Uh, You can do a thing called traveling into these other dimensions, and that's why they're called inner planes. You see, uh, in order to get to these planes, whether you're living here ongoingly or you're dead and you're going on, in order to achieve that result, you must travel through your own centers, chakras, to achieve that result. Most people think of it as going through one chakra, but actually as you go to more complex elements of each of these higher dimensions, you're going using more than just one chakra to get there. But regardless, it's through the inner parts of ourselves that we can travel back and forth to these uh, inner, uh, to these planes, to these other dimensions. Now, are the dimensions, therefore, minuscule? Because you're going through your chakras, which are pretty small, actually. They're not, they're not huge by any stretch of imagination. And the answer is no. Uh, you shrink down your uh, etheric or electromagnetic body, which is easy to do, by the way, uh, to the size of the chakra or chakras you're traveling through. And that's a whole other story. How do you travel through more than one chakra? <laughs> I never thought about that. But anyway, uh, you actually you do. And uh, when you uh, do this, you travel through a, uh, we'll call it, dimensional ridge, which will, some people call it the tunnel of light. And you get to the place you intended on or you maybe didn't intend upon arriving at. Now, the, the important thing to realize here is that the place you're going to is actually huge. Uh, The arrival into this place is uh, through a very small vessel, that's true, your chakra, 
But in reality, the dimensions are actually greater in, I guess we could call it size, simply because there is more dimensionality to them, which literally changes what we think of in terms of sizes. But the most important part of tonight's show is that these dimensions of time and space and their sub-counterparts, because in reality you don't go to a huge other dimension, you go to a sub-dimension of a huge dimension. And the sub-dimension itself is oftentimes as large or larger than Earth itself. So it's, it's huge in terms of the area. When I say Earth, I'm talking about the surface area of Earth. That's where people usually live. And so, you see, uh, there's something else that's even more important than the size, surface area, and that sort of stuff. The physics changes, something called the quantum constant, grows by a significant number. And when that happens, things like um, the uh, perspective of time changes. There's actually a lot more time as you become more dimensionally complex, <laughs> which these places are complex, they are really that. And that extra time means that folks over there are living more time, they have a, a greater life, a longer life in a sense, than in the same period of time we, we live here. That's called time dilation. Dilation is when things get bigger. Uh, that's what the word means. It's So it's getting bigger, and there's more time to live in. Uh, Another way to think about it is in terms of the speed of time, which is a little weird, because it has to do with the speed of light. But we'll call it that for the moment. And so time is very, very um, much uh, in terms of the ratio of speed uh, faster. But that doesn't mean you use it up more. It means you have more to live in. People get confused in that concept all the time. All right. So what are we saying? Well, um, you live here, say, for 100 years. Make it real simple. And you go over on the other side. And within 30 years here, you can live hundreds of years more there. Hundreds of years. In just 30 years. So it depends where you're going to, you know. I mean, these things kind of uh, have a mathematical uh, value to them. I'll go th- I'll go through those with you. Um, the math is uh, tricky if you do the real numbers using parts of the quantum constant. You have to use a multiplier of that, and, and there's there's it's fairly sophisticated physics kind of math. And unfortunately, for most people, it's like, huh? So we're not going to deal with it that way. I'll just give you rounded numbers so that you can understand it within, you know, simple things like anybody could figure out. And so when we leave here, somewhere between, uh, for most people, uh, 6 times to 24, 6 times to 24 times, is the amount of dilation in the first major dimension of time-space that people move on to, which is all, also has a name called the astral world. So if you're going to one of the sub-dimensions in the astral world, and assuming you're not one of the few, very few, hopefully, ego, uh, evil folks who are going you know, to hang out in a kind of their own territory, which 
kind of slow down, slows down time and confuses everybody, uh, so they can be hidden from everyone else. If you change the time space, it becomes very difficult to be found, literally, and to be observed. They don't like either, so they got their way. You know, they changed the time space, and they're in a different time space. It's pretty hard to find them, and. Uh, in order to operate in that time space, you have to really have an unusual kind of body that puts enormous forces on your body, and it virtually kills anybody who isn't themselves enlightened. So you can't just go knock on the door of evil and say, hey, can I come in for a visit? <laughs> They'll say, sure, come on in. And as soon as you walk in, that's it. You're squished and goodbye. Uh, that's what happens to the folks uninvited, <laughs> or even invited if they walk in. But for, I mean, there is a way to go there and be protected by light. Yeah, it's, it's possible. It's rare. And so for the most part, for, you know, people don't go there. But for the rest of us, we can live in all the rest of the subdivisions of the astral world without getting squished and without terrible things going on awry. And uh, we live in these dimensions um, based upon our consciousness. Consciousness. Now, why is that? Well, because energy follows thought greater than its own in order to operate in the astral world. You use your own thought called creative imagination, sort of different than mental thinking. You know what that is probably. But creative imagination is when you imagine something. And whatever you imagine in your thought in the astral subworld becomes created from the thought itself causing the energy that's surrounding you to create whatever you're thinking. And you can create anything you want. Honestly, yeah. You ready to go? Oh, no, no. <laughs> I know it sounds like, well, that's pretty cool. Can I do that as long and as much as I want? Uh, sort of, as long as your senses hold up, yeah. You can, and, and your thought is good enough, you can keep doing that for a long, long time. And you got a lot of time, you're going to be living in. Three, uh, six times to 24 times more time than here. Now, you might say, well, that sounds great. <laughs> What's the big problem? Uh, well, again, tonight's show is ongoing human relationships on the inner planes. That means ongoing. That means in relationship to people here as well. So once you leave here, you don't just leave the folks behind that you know, they stay in this time space. They stay here in this time space. You go on. You know, like the song says, you go on. You know, well, you go on, but when you go on, you see, you don't go on in the same way. You're living in a different form of energy um, that well, it's a de minimis part of your body before, but now it's the body where your consciousness is focused. It's your astral body. And um, from that standpoint, everything around you is made out of astral energy. And your creative, imaginative astral thought causes this energy to do whatever your, your desire is, literally. Talk about getting your desires met almost instantly. It's, that's what happens. You Oh, I know. Everybody's jumping up in joy. Hey, I got my desires. Hey, it sounds better. Yeah, yeah, okay. 
But remember, the folks you leave behind, they aren't uh, doing the same thing at the same time. They aren't here. And they're uh, experiencing their life at a much slower pace, literally. If you observe them, and sometimes it's possible to do that, by the way, if you observe them from uh, one of the astral subclines, you would see people moving uh, darn slowly. Yeah, anywhere from 6 to 24 times slower than you would be in the astral world moving yourself. Now, that may not be a problem for some folks, uh, but it is for others. And particularly if you have any significant interest in what folks are doing here, that could be a very uh, deterring aspect to paying much attention. Because, I mean, let's face it, just imagine your favorite movie run 24 times slower. That's like one frame a second for the typical movie. That's really slow. 24 times longer to watch a two-hour movie is two days to watch the two-hour movie, right? Whoa. That would be a long sitting. And that's part of the physics. Now, so you're not just separated by a thing called energy and space, it's really the time deal that separates people. That's the big issue. Time, for some folks, becomes a quagmire. They don't know how to deal with it, and they find it rather disturbing that here everybody seems so close in some way, uh, yet they're, divide, they're, they're so so far away because the time is causing this issue. Now, in reverse, just so we can understand ourselves, if you could see people in the astral world, which is much more difficult than trying to see people from the astral world here, uh, is it possible? Uh, seeing is pretty hard. You can maybe hear better than you can see, but but I'm not going to say it's impossible. There are folks that have done this. But they're moving fast. <laughs> they're moving 6 to 24 times faster. They're speaking 6 to 24 times faster. Uh, it's pretty hard to understand what they're saying, what their gestures, anything. They, the only way they can communicate is for the folks in the astral world to speak very slowly. <laughs> okay. And that's what they do. The folks in the astral train themselves to speak at the rate of the time dilation if they're trying to communicate with someone here in the physical world. Now, I know this sounds like, oh, come on, you got to be kidding. No, I'm not kidding. And this is all supported by the formulas that I have suggested in physics, uh, if you get the textbook I wrote, I said, meaning uh, some elements of those formulas are suggested in the book. If you call me, I'll go into greater detail with them. But the point is, especially if you're a physicist, and so here's the point. Here, here is the point. You, you've got this, um, you got this kind of, uh, we'll say, unusual, <laughs> unusual way that people can kind of relate, but in general, 
it's almost impossible for most normal people, average people, to be able to do much of anything with this kind of, um, we'll say, bar to uh, truly communication. And it's not easily dealt with. And for most folks, it just plain becomes a major obstacle. Now, how does that affect our ongoing human relationships? Well, a lot of them between here and there become ended. Now, the interesting thing about this is that uh, people who uh, knew something about angels' wisdom long time ago actually knew some of the things I'm saying tonight. They didn't understand it from the math and stuff. I'm not suggesting that. But they knew it in terms of knowledge. They didn't have the concepts clear. And so they would tell people, look, if you're getting married, it's only good until you die. Because you can't continue the relationship thereafter, even though there is a thereafter, and you're going to go live in some religion, say heaven or hell or whatever you go. But you're going to go live somewhere. And you won't be able to carry through on being, quote-unquote, married or together. And the same is true told about children. You have to let go of deceased children, or children need to let go of deceased parents. And the reason for this is that there is this, we'll call it, time problem that is significant. Now, does that mean it's impossible? No. And we'll we'll discuss the ways around the problem, so to speak. But it still is, for most people, formidable to uh, deal with. And that's the reason uh, in most uh, religions and most, uh, we'll say, uh, uh, call it spiritual uh, dictates and explanations, uh, that uh, it's generally concluded that uh, you can't really maintain a relationship to someone who has gone over and left this world. And it's not uh, encouraged because it's almost impossible and it probably uh, is not well, we'll call it uh, likely, that they're going to uh, create much in a benefit either by trying to to do this. So in other words, it's not it's not like it's not like well, it's up to you, give it a try. It's usually discouraged because the outcomes uh, have such a high rate of uh, problems and failures, and so that's why they try to make it so that people don't waste their time and or their life trying to do something so difficult. Now, tonight's show is kind of going to be about how to deal with this subject in a way other than what is traditionally taught, and that will have some, uh, we'll say, other alternatives than the ones that I suggested in general. So don't give up, because there's always more. And some of it is going to be pretty far out there because there's a lot of uh, nuances to this physics that is uh, strange enough to give people hope about a lot of things. And uh, it is uh, almost 
God's plan. Uh, it seems to be, uh, based upon experience and phenomenological study on my part, plus uh, some experiments, it seems to be that uh, God has uh, invented a system, created a system, and all of those that work with God to um, allow those who uh, co-create with God, with the Creator, uh, the ability to do things that most people would consider impossible and even uh, maybe uh, not wise, not even good for you because it's so difficult or impossible to do. It would be simply uh, get nothing from it kind of result. But on the other side, that isn't true. It is, it, it, it is possible that um, people... People can actually have uh, ongoing human relationships between subplanes uh, of existence and between planes of existence without actually torturing themselves or preventing themselves from having some uh, significant value to their life. And may I remind you that the the benefit actually is more, if you think about this, it's probably more to those who have gone over if they can solve the problem than those who have stayed here. We, we feel, we feel, all we are at tremendous loss because our loved ones are gone. Over there, right? And those people who go over there, if they're not in the same subworlds, may have similar aspects of uh, issues. But in re- and then there's also our our pets and animals that are close to us. We sometimes have a desire to have contact with them. Same sort of thing. But those on the other side, actually, because they live longer in the same period of time, experience the loss in an accelerated and we'll call it deeper way. For us, things are going so slow. <laughs> Okay, well, you you know, if someone passes on and it's going to be 12 years before you see them again, you can probably manage the 12 years with that much. But to them, it, it could be 200 years. That's a difference. That's the biggest part of the problem in the equation. And most people don't know that. And so they always think of it in the reverse, I think, or most of the time, you think of it in the reverse, that the one who stays here is the one who is uh, so grieving and suffering, whereas the one on the other side, you know, they're having a great old time. Well, that is not necessarily the case. Now, some people have asked me, and I, I, I try to be as keen as I can about this, but, you know, there's issues about trying to tell somebody who's grieving for a, for a very recent loss, um, you know, how much do you want them to really know about it? But they've asked me, well, will the other person wait for me? <laughs> You're saying, hey, there's a thing, dilation, and everything. Well, I don't know if it's fair to talk about it in terms of wait, <clears throat> because waiting implies that somehow patience is the issue of the day. In other words, oh, if they are just patient, 
you know, weights, right? Well, 200 years is not exactly a question of patience. It's a question, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a question of whether or not it's wise, whether or not it is virtuous. In other words, enlightening for in service to others to do that. Or does it really go against what's best for all? And that's a very important issue to think about. And then, I, the reason I'm afraid to tell people about this is because it may encourage them to want to kill themselves, the ones here. Because, oh, well, I can't have them get too far ahead, and if they're going to suffer over there, well, then, heck, I better do something about it. Where's my gun? <laughs> get a little spray on my throat there. Where's my gun? i got to blow my brains out because... <laughs> I want to go over there. Oh, don't do that. Because if you kill yourself, number one, you could get trapped in the astral, in the etheric world for a while. And, and even if you don't, it's an amazingly selfish act to do. And it certainly isn't part of God's plan. And it's just as likely you're going to fail anyway if it's really not your time and you might end up a vegetable in the hospital for 20 years or something. That would be terrible. But, they, but but let's say you succeed. Let's say, that, okay, you kill yourself, you go there. But you don't go where your spouse or friend or child or whatever is because in killing yourself, you detach yourself so much from the relative consciousness of the other person. And consciousness is what keeps you together that you end up someplace in a subworld so different from them, you're still not going to be together. And if they try to come to be with you, they lose their life, their meaning in their life, and, and some of their consciousness. And it's a, it's a terrible thing. There are a lot of issues here. And I might talk, I guess I'll go into that part right then. If two people go to the astral world and don't have similar consciousness, and I mean fairly close, not it doesn't mean that. If their consciousness are spread apart, and it, something as as dire as killing yourself to want to be with your friend or lover or whoever it is, can lead to you being isolated from them, uh, distant by more than one subworld, and dilated by a significant amount of time, just like you would be here. And so you're not going to have any better life that way, other than the fact you're dead. Um, you're dead here. And you've given up a great opportunity to serve here. And so it's a, it's a kind of uh, catch-22 for those folks. And, I, I, and it's hard to convince people of this. I've known uh, several people over my life who have killed themselves in the hope to join a loved one in the afterlife. And I always regret that I wasn't in some way convincing enough or educationally enough, uh, educational or explicit or whatever. I missed the boat, I thought, in getting this point across. So for tonight, I don't want to miss that boat. Because yeah, there's too many people could, who could confuse what I'm trying to explain and come to a conclusion that is not true. All right. So if you want to do things that are accurate, that represent a truth, then listen to tonight's show. And if you need to re-listen to it and uh, contact me, 
Now, that's, and if you think you can, I can guarantee you it won't work. You will end up someplace other than where you, you know, whoever it is, is in almost all cases. Because, unfortunately, suicide is a very selfish act. Most people don't think it is, but it really is. Yeah. And the desire to be together will be proportionately different. Desires control life in the astral world. And so one one person, even if they weren't exactly the same subdimension, which I doubt it would be, their desires would pull them apart because each would have different desires. One was willing to kill themselves. And so you see that that's a kind of, you know, that, that puts them in a, in a it, it creates a difference in their, in their viewpoints, in most circumstances. Now, if both people killed themselves, then what would that mean? Oh, we always could talk about all kinds of weird stuff tonight. That's an interesting issue. Um, mutual suicide. <laughs> you know, and I'm not suggesting that you know each takes a gun and shoots the other person. Or something. But it could be. Let's say that both people kill themselves almost at the same time or at the same time, and want to go off into the astral sunset together. What occurs then? Well, suicide has a lot of risk because, again, one person may die, and the other might survive it. You cannot, you can't bet on this thing because the soul has a lot of factors that it can do to change the outcome. And the results can be disturbing. One person could die and the other one could live. Both of them could live and they could become vegetables and they're not interacting that way very much, are they? Or you could end up in a very strange circumstance. And that that is the following. Uh, both of them lose enough consciousness because of, if, if the death of them are selfish, and this is weird, they can lose enough consciousness that the meaning of their life together will be so disturbed by the loss in consciousness of the mutual suicide that they lose more than if they had stayed in a world here where they may be miserable for various reasons or facing certain issues they don't want to face, but they'd be better off having stayed here and worked together to deal with whatever they were doing. So that's my answer in general. Now, there have been a lot of interesting stories written about this, and uh, you, you can imagine. But at any rate, that's, uh, that's another suggestion that I have, which may or may not be adhered to by some people. What if a person uh, isn't concerned that much about necessarily a specific person they want to be with or people they want to see or family and friends, but they're miserable and they want to end their life here? Well, what's wrong with that? I mean, why not go? Well, this is a very difficult uh, problem. When people are uh, nearing their death, Generally speaking, uh, the time of death is chosen, uh, it should be chosen by their soul and not by themselves because they don't have enough consciousness to understand the implications of the time of death. They just think, what's the difference? Today's as good a day as anything. Well, I'll do it today, I'll do it tomorrow. What's the difference? Actually, there is a big difference, and the soul understands that, but the human consciousness doesn't necessarily. And so only people who are pretty darn high in consciousness, you could say, have earned 
the right to be able to know when and if it's okay to leave. And those people can leave almost at will anyway. They may not even have to use a gun. They might not have to use anything. But but that's real. Most people don't have that ability. And even if you use the method of killing yourself, which is forbidden in any respect because of the method, the point is that, again, if you really understand that there's good reason to leave, that's okay. There's also the question then of what if you don't want to die, but you just want to go for a visit, and that's going to have to traveling, and how come you can't do that? Well, you can't. But every time you do it, you may hurt your senses, diminish your consciousness, and make it more difficult when you do die to go to a higher subworld in the first place that you might end up going to. And when you come back and live in this life, your senses here are diminished, and that will cut down the amount of spiritual life you lead and the kind of service you do here. So there's a lot to saying, don't do it, don't go. But what if you have somebody over there you want to visit? Well, remember, when you go over and visit them, you're visiting them in their time if you can get there, which is very difficult to do because the people who are dying sometimes have high, relatively high consciousness and they could be in a subplane that's very hard to get to just to ask them. Easier to get there when you're dead, but hard to get there to ask them. And so you're going to experience their time, which will uh, change your perspective because you'll be living more over there. So when you come back, you might say, well, how much is James over here? But when we live more elsewhere, our life starts taking on, excuse me, the meaning of the place that we're living the most in. And then the relative level of meaning in life here diminishes. And you need to understand this. I'm going to tell you this frankly, and I hope you are listening out there, that the folks who do a lot of this astral travel come back with a depressed feeling and reality to their life in this world. They become overly ambitious to try to get pick up the difference, here, but it may not work for them. And generally, so the more you live over there, you come back here and ah, not much is going on. Uh, it, 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 there's a there's a kind of um, depressive aspect in life here may, in effect, become depressive and lack meaning because you can get so much more in so much less of the time here uh, when you're over on the other side, and that becomes the life that paintings one and one have. Except that we're here in this world because this is the most difficult dimension to create more of God and more of light. There's more forces here, more darkness here. It's just a more difficult place to live. But we came here with that purpose. And to shirk the purpose by starting astral travel, uh, and if you do it a lot, which can be kind of addictive, then you miss the meaning here, and your senses here diminish, your life here diminishes, the likelihood of depression is high, and um, the outcomes are usually not positive. So I tell people that, because I don't know how often they listen to me about these things, but, you know, it's the truth, and I guess you won't notice it in the beginning, but you might experience it, and then hopefully 
uh, curtail doing more harm. So that's something to also consider in terms of this traveling business. Generally, it doesn't work out for the best. Now, I say one time might be worth it to some folks to convince themselves there's actually life after death, convince themselves God exists, that's one of the things that happens usually, and convince themselves of a number of other colorings to those um, to those aspects because there's so many of them. Uh, because one astral experience oftentimes is virtually life-changing for folks. So for that reason, I say, well, maybe then the trade-off is worth it for that one time. Uh, and if you have the uh, wherewithal and the, let's say, um, discipline to not keep doing this sort of thing, then I would suggest that maybe it would be worth it. But if you're going to find, make it your whole life goal, like, oh, I want to live over there, it will probably shorten your life here, almost certainly, and certainly diminish, even more so, diminish the meaning of this life and potentially lead you into a depressed state. Besides losing your senses and aging you and God, it goes on. It's just not great. Your energy will be sapped, you'll be tired more often than not. I mean, this is a lot of bad things come out of this sort of stuff. All right, so I'm not encouraging that. That's not my, uh, my viewpoint. What about going to visit a loved child or anyone like that who uh, you're missing terribly and you're willing to say, well, I'll do it once or twice only and I won't try to interfere with their life much and nothing like that. What about that? Well, that has an interesting number of twists to it. And you know what? I'm doing one of my cliffhangers. I haven't done this in a long time. Uh, we're going to get to that <laughs> when I come back from the break, or we come back from the break, and um, we'll get into what that entails. Uh, there's a lot of people who have questions about that. That I've had that asked to me quite a few times, so I know there's folks out there who want to have uh, some ideas about that uh, answer. Okay, we will be back uh, within about two and a half uh, minutes, give or take, from right now. Hun, what book are you reading? It's a novel, kind of, about romance, love, and spiritual life in general. Kind of a novel? What do you mean? Well, it's based on some real-life experiences and even real characters. Some of their experiences are fascinating and remarkable. I can't put this book down. How come the title is Afterlife Love? That's part of the fascination. This book describes the afterlife in intricate detail and even explains why things are the way they're explained. But how can anyone write about or know that? Some of the characters travel out of body to some places that people who've already died also go to. I'm finding it completely believable because it all makes sense and fits into a bigger picture for me. Hun, what happens to these people? You can read it for yourself when I'm done if you want. Better yet, I'll get my own copy so we can discuss it while we read. Let me see. I'll write down the title. It's Afterlife Love by Niles McFlower. M-A-C-F-L-O-U-E-R. Afterlife Love is available in some bookstores and from the publisher at agelesswisdom.com or 480-966-3132. That's 480-966-3132. Hi, everyone. Since childhood, I've had questions about my life and life in general that I couldn't find adequate answers to. Questions like, why am I here? Why are others here? Does the universe have a purpose? And how does that relate to my life? 
More recently, I've been wondering what happens when we die, especially the reasons why. I'm more of a doubter than a believer in many things, and answers that include the whys allow me to think and figure out the truth for myself. I've been reading a book, Life's Hidden Meaning. This one book contains more answers, including the whys, than all other sources I've read or heard. It's amazing to me that every one of my questions has been thoroughly answered. More importantly, I have found that all of these answers so far have checked out to be true. I hope this message helps some of you in your quest for better understanding. The name of this wonderful book is, again, Life's Hidden Meaning by metaphysician Niles McFlower. Some bookstores sell it. I got my copy directly from the publisher at agelesswisdom.com. Life's hidden meaning may enlighten your mind and bring some peace and joy to your heart. We're back. This is Why Life Is. I'm Niles McFlower. Tonight, hey, we're talking about ongoing human relationships on the inner plane. And uh, when right before we went to break, I suggested that I would come back and finish explaining, well, what the story might be for someone wanting to go visit someone. And the typical thing is someone loses a, a child, and they want to go visit that child on one of the inner planes. And they want to know, can they work on this? And usually it takes a couple months, up to six months. It depends on what subplane they are. To manage to do this, it's not an easy thing. It takes quite a bit of effort. And there there's a lot of complications. Let's say the child dies. Okay, and the child ends up, I'll just make this up, so they end up in the fourth subplane. Okay, the dilation there is about 15 times. So for every month that goes on here, that child's living 15, one, five months in the astral. Oh, okay. And let's say that you get lucky and you get there in six months. All right. Well, six months would be 90 months there, right? Six times 15, 90 months. Okay. So how long is 90 months? <laughs> ah, well, it's like seven and a half years. So by the time you get there, the child that left you, let's say the child died when they were six years old, right? the child that left you as a six-year-old has been living for seven and a half years in the astral world. They are now a teenager. Now, they may not have developed as quite as quickly on the fourth, in the fourth sub-world as they might have here, but it'd be pretty close. It's, they might act more like they're 11 or something like that. But it, because it, without the challenges of this life here, you actually grow up a little slower uh, in the lower subplanes, including the fourth, it's just slightly less. As you go to the higher sub, sub-worlds, you can grow up faster. So that's a whole other thing. But, but at any rate, the, the point is that regardless, regardless, this is a child that, in its perspective, you've been gone a long time. <laughs> I mean, sure, it'd be kind of interesting maybe to visit mom or dad, uh, but 
There's something else. There are some other things to understand. First of all, that child is going to possibly have brothers and sisters. All the children in the astral world are adopted. There are no children born in the astral world. You can't have babies. You can't get pregnant there other than through your imagination, and that won't work. Because as soon as you lose your focus of your imagination, so with the baby or child, now gone. <laughs> Most people don't like that experience and don't do it. But at any rate, um, so what happens is, uh, the, you, in order to create life, it has to start here in the physical. And then that life, that human life, or any life actually, uh, goes back to its soul, but through a gradual process of living here and then in the astral, probably the lower mental subworld. And that's normal. That's the way it was designed to be. But that means you can't be born there. You can die into that dimension of time space. And children do, of course. Uh, it's unfortunate, but children die here sometimes. And they're in short supply, believe it or not, in the astral world. Because people can't just have kids, you know. Uh, now, when a child is... Um, when a child is relatively normal in consciousness, not lower in consciousness, relatively normal in consciousness, and they get to the astral, their consciousness is what selects their parents, not vice versa. So the parent can say, gee, I really like to have kids. You know, parents really like to have kids. And two parents always find more children than one. And since there's a short supply, most kids get two parents. But the way it works is that it's a selection based upon the consciousness of the child because you find things in the astral world based upon both consciousness and sense. Those with the best senses and a consciousness that matches find children of equal uh, level. And usually the children find the parents, not like parents, not like versa. And it may be parents with no children or the parents with the children because matching consciousness and sense is not based upon the parents' desires. So uh, weird as it sounds, some parents have quite a few children and some have none based not on their desires because they may all equally desire to have children or not, but um, they it's based upon this consciousness issue which is so fascinating. It was fascinating to me to find that. And I uh, I still am fascinated by it. And, and this, to me, everything is so incredibly clear about God there. Not here, I know. Here it's hard to find God and see it clearly. But in the industry world, it's like right there in your face kind of stuff. And this is one of those remarkable things that I haven't done much talking about that really struck me about the astral world is how how much it works. <laughs> I mean, it's like, wow, this is a great system. What an amazing place. Because things are godly. It's like, it, it isn't based on, like, stuff here. Like, well, I think I'll go get drunk tonight. I mean, it's, of course, there's people that do have weird lower consciousness. I like that. But they don't attract very many children, interestingly. 
amazingly, uh, for their uh, level of life, are more conscious than adults in relative terms because they're not as destroyed. Now, there's exceptions to this, but nonetheless, uh, you find their consciousness draws to themselves to the third. So let me give you an example of actual real life. Parents are out playing with their kids, you know, or maybe they're in the house they have to constantly construct it for themselves. And a child arrives in, let's call it the fourth subworld. Okay, I've been using that a lot tonight. They arrive in the fourth subworld, very pretty place, lots of good people around, all kinds of people who want to have kids, believe me. And the kid just literally flies or can almost instantly fly to uh, the folks' house that are just perfect for him. Literally. His or her consciousness dictates this, not the parents, although the parents' consciousness does, but only as the passive. So if the parents went out and looked for a child, they could only find a child that would find them. <laughs> that is strange. That's how it works. Why is that true? Well, it has to do with the principle of love. Almost all the time, but there are exceptions to this rule, the children are more loving than the parents in terms of the aspect of um, their, we'll say, inner nature. That doesn't mean that they don't, the parents don't want to give. They do. They actually love, uh, love is giving. But what the parents usually want to give are the things that the child needs more from an external reality. What the child wants to give is the joy of itself to the parent once it arrives in the astral world if it's on the fifth astral subworld or higher. On the sixth or seventh, there are a lot of exceptions to what I'm telling you, but there aren't a lot of children that go there, but they, the ones that do are kind of messed up, and they don't have this reality to themselves. But on the fourth, it was really remarkable to watch this thing, that the kids, the, 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 the kid was actually the one that was doing this, and it was a, an amazing thing to see, because they just, you know, literally go to the folks' house, <laughs> There they are. And if the folks are outside, they'll find them outside. If they're inside the house, the kid will go right through the walls of the house, into the house. You can do that. And uh, I'm home. <laughs> and the parents, are, are they know that the kid's there, and they know that it's coming maybe minutes or so beforehand, but they don't have, they don't have the, the process of selection. And, of course, the kid doesn't go to any particular parent that would want it because it can feel that in itself. It's so amazing. Okay. So that's how it works. And because of that, children in the astral world from the fifth subworld up find almost always ideal parents for themselves the best that they could. That's not true here. I mean, I mean, let's be honest. That's really not true here, is it? 
Um, there's so much karma that goes on, and so many forces, and so many issues in the physical world. And because a lot of children are not adopted, they're you know they're born. People aren't selected or selecting. They're just it is you know this is your child because it was born to you. And oftentimes it isn't based purely on love, like it is in the astral world. It's based on all kinds of karmic things. And the karma works its way out in the physical world, its forces. But in the astral world, most of the karma isn't there. And there are very few forces relative. So you find the right one without the forces interfering in. And so the good news is when your child dies, now I, I better be gentle about this. I know that I'm going to talk to some people who are going to be listening who may have had this experience recently. But when your child dies, it goes to the ideal parents, most likely two people in the afterworld. And if you go visit that child, let's say you can, and it's, remember, six months to get there, it's going to be seven and a half years before it's over. Uh, when you get there, that child has lived with an idyllic, in an idyllic situation with ideal parents, um, for a long time before you arrive. And your perspective might be, oh, it's only been six months, and, it, and we loved each other, you know, my child. But their bond with their new parents may be far greater than the one that they had had with the parents. And the parents. And... Uh, has grown to a level that uh, is... So the problem is, when these circumstances arise, which luckily is very rare, um, there's a despondence and a uh, feeling of rejection sometimes and a definite disappointment by a parent or parents who have exercised every possible discipline to get to where they're going and managed to do it and to find that the reality of the situation is different than what they expected. Now, I'm not trying to discourage people or make them feel bad, but let's be real about this because we are, again, dealing with dilation issues, we're dealing with senses and consciousness issues, Things that are so unusual and different that if you don't get this, you can make some huge errors in believing that you can get something back that is lost. But what you might get back is a disappointment that you never should have had in the first place. So you see that there's two sides to this coin. Um, maybe the observation of someone in this position will be better than the interaction because then you could say, oh, well, my kid's with the greatest parent on earth <laughs> in the astral world anyway. And everything's best for them there. This is a place where kids uh, uh, get more out of life in some ways, but they don't get physical life experience. And there's no compensation for that. Although they are with great 
parent, the best they could get. And although the circumstances are uh, minimally forceful, um, they don't have the experience of living in the most potential creative place they could be, even though it would be difficult to all get out and forceful, which is here. And that loss cannot be made up for in the astral world or mentally. So children do lose They lose here. And that's unfortunate. There's some compensation because when they get to the astral world, they're growing up under the best circumstances possible. Here it's averaged by karma and forces. And all kinds of things that interfere, right? There it's been. So that's how it works. And uh, maybe we can uh, get to the point in understanding this that people who have lost children recognize that their kids are literally somewhat in a better place, but their kids have lost a great opportunity. And they're not suffering, but they are they are in some ways lost from the aspect of not having a physical life. And that's the biggest part of living because this is the part where you learn how to be God in the hardest ways. And you can't compensate for that by just living more in the astral world or growing up in the astral world. Growing up in the astral world uh, is easier for children uh, until they hit the third subworld, uh, where it's kind of complex in its way and you know, it's with it. Uh, we'll say almost as much um, from the added complexity uh, to produce some kinds of inner uh, issues that cause the children to actually grow faster, a little faster than they would here in this world, grow up faster. When you get to the second subworld, and few children do, but these are children who actually were spiritual to some degree here in the physical world, die from here at an earlier age than adulthood, go on to live in the second subworld usually, or they get there after a few years or decades possibly, but usually years, in one of the lower subworlds, but usually no lower than the fourth, because you can't get to the second that easily. But at any rate, once they get to the second, they grow extremely like every year is like five, ten years of growth. So within a year, a a ten-year-old will be almost an adult in the second subworld. And in the first subworld, which is even rarer, if a child goes there, a year they can grow up in an incredibly fast pace. Uh, within months of arrival, most of the children start taking on adult-like characteristics in consciousness and uh, capacities and abilities. This is because they're serving at such high levels, their consciousness is developing, and it's consciousness that creates them. Their own body and the way they look is created by their consciousness, so they change the way they look, and they look more adult-like as they grow in their consciousness. And that can happen in the first subworld within a few months, 
of time, uh, a 10-year-old can become an adult. It's possible, and not only possible, it's even likely within like six months. So that's the thing that's so amazing about these spiritual sub-worlds is it leads children, if they are unfortunate to die, but it leads children who are going to serve there into amazingly enriched, long adult life because they don't have much of a child. And they don't need or want one. Exactly. Uh, desire only is an issue in terms of spiritual operation, not in terms of what they really want or their personal self. And so the interesting thing is that, again, they end up in being a very fortunate place. And the good news is that the best way to raise a child is as a soul, because no matter what happens to that soul, here or there or anywhere, they're going to grow up better, faster, and be superb and amazing beings. And so everybody says, well, what can I do? How do you, how do I take care of my kid? How do I prevent my kid from having a terrible thing and maybe they'll die? Or Well, you can't maybe stop that. But you can make it if, if their life is so amazing, so fantastic, that they are spiritual children right from the get-go teach them angels' wisdom. You help them in every possible way to grow up into a soul as early as possible. No matter what happens after that, they got it made. If they stay here, they become great beings. If they go over to the other side because there's some issue with death, then they become great beings there. Isn't that amazing? Now, uh, I didn't exactly talk about the uh, issue of parents in the two extremes. We'll talk about that in the afterlife. And I think it's worthwhile to bring this uh, in, into it. If you have a child that uh, dies from the uh, physical world, that is relatively conscious, we'll say uh, near spiritual conscious, third subworld or higher is where they go to. Then those children grow up faster, as I said, but they also um, are given more uh, opportunity to serve with than just with their quote-unquote parents. They get the opportunity to be parented by more than two people. Especially true, this is especially true in the second and first subworld. It's a little true in the third, but not as true as in the uh, second and first. And so these children are uh, just amazing because they like have have more than one set of parents that really are like parents to them, and they have. But each gives the child another kind of consciousness that it helps them to develop it, and it's, a, it's just kind of a group effort in child rearing. But they still they still have like primary parents, but um, there's no possessiveness involved, and there's a an ability for them to not only grow faster, but in a more balanced way that uh, gives them all kinds of advantages because they're they're getting consciousness from so many different uh, places, different people. It's a it's a great place, and they may have therefore separate families that connected to. 
There just aren't a lot of children in these places. So uh, all children are valued with tremendous, uh, tremendously high values. I mean, can people consider having a child in the third, second, or first subworlds with great, uh, you know, it's like the greatest thing you have, you have a child, and if you have more than one child, it's a big deal. Again, because they're kind of real. It's not that that many people who have them. It seems like everybody wants them. Not everyone does, but uh, it seems like that. Now, in the sixth and seventh subworld, you got kind of the inversion of the stuff I've just been saying. I don't want to discourage anybody. Now, children that go to these subworlds are children that have had a terrible childhood, usually, here in the physical world, and they were born with a lot of complicated and difficult karmic issues. They were oftentimes born with serious diseases, lack of certain senses, problems in uh, the relationship with the parents that have socioeconomic uh, disasters of various natures they went through, and also uh, just uh, sometimes plain old abuse of various kinds. These children aren't being punished. Their consciousness is too low to get uh, to be children of parents in the fifth and higher. And they oftentimes don't have the same kind of love connection uh, with their parents because they themselves aren't very loving and neither are their parents. However, the good news about it is that uh, the parents still have strong personal desires of love and those connected with the children's needs and desires to be loved find each other on equal levels. And so the good news is at least you don't have a, a, a child paired up with a parent with a parent still abusing a child that shouldn't be or, or wouldn't be normally in that position. Now, does it mean that children aren't abused? Well, they are. I don't want to get too deep into this. In the seventh subworld, children are seen more on a possessive side, because that's the way the whole subworld is. And so people want to have kids because they want to actually control and possess them. Now, they are a bit more loving than people generally are who want to control and possess kids in the physical world. But they, that doesn't mean they don't sometimes um, abuse us, and they don't sometimes do the wrong thing. They do. But it's not as severe, and it's not as often. But the children do grow up slowly. Sometimes it could take two or three times as long for children to grow up in these low subworlds where you got all kinds of folks who really aren't all that conscious. And so you have to you have to put up with whatever you got, and that's what you got. Good news is that there's not a heck of a lot the children end up in the southern subworld. But there's still some, and a lot of times they're from primitive parts of the world, and that's unfortunate for them. I don't want you to think, though, that everybody in the seventh subworld that adopts children is an abuser, because they're not. Most of them actually aren't too bad. They're better than they are living singly or individually in their life. Uh, And I think having children is good for kids. Good for parents in the seven subworld people there. In any, at any rate, you end up with more single parents in the subworld than uh, than 
the other room. And part of the reason is because people don't stay all that together. They, they, they do for a while. They stay together for a year or two or three, and they kind of have a possessive attitude towards each other. But uh, it doesn't always stay, last that long, and therefore raising a child for 20 years, because one of the children is really slowly, may not work so much. You have times where they have they may have two parents at times we may have only one. And then in the case of the six up world, that's the place where you find that um the the children really tend to try to avoid they do, uh being uh, with parents that are uh very we'll call it uh disordered in their personalities and uh unloving. And so they, they move away from those folks for the most part. That depends. If they're really mistreated in the physical world, that may not be true. And there's some moderate amounts of abuse there, a bit more than what I think that I saw in the, uh, you know, in the seventh sub-world. But in the, in the, in the sixth sub-world, it's more of a, uh, just a lifestyle of people. It's so, um, so loose, people don't stay together very long at all. Even a year would sound like a long time to a lot of people. A year of astral time. Remember, the, the kids are still taking almost as long growing up as in the seventh sub-world. It could be 15, 20 years. And it's, so they may not stay with the same the same parent. That's the worst part. And um, there, there's all kinds of other factors that come into play. Again, not a lot of kids end up in the sixth subworld. And some are, uh, over time, as they start growing up, actually leave the sixth subworld and go to the fifth. They can do that. And so kids can grow. They can become more conscious, and as they do, they can actually extricate themselves from that subworld and go to the, go to the fifth. And there, the, the people there are much more loving and much better parents than people in the six or seven summers. Now, the people, you know, what, I, what I've seen from the seven subworld is really a, a place of people wanting to hold on to children. So it works pretty good for them because they they don't mind the fact that kids are growing up slowly. But in the six subworld, it's kind of the opposite. So there's an intolerance to the slow rate at which children grow, and the parents get tired of it, and then the child will find someone else as a parent. It isn't the best situation, and it can produce problems in these eventual adults in their life. But this is the nature of the lower subworlds. It's unfortunate that it is like that, but it's the way things are. Now, I've had people tell me, well, okay, my kid's probably in the sixth sub-world. Why can't I go visit them there? They they, they would find me to be, you know, I'm an old mom, back old mom and dad. The only problem, again, is that they're growing so slowly that that's a strange kind of relationship because uh, if there isn't, unless you're going to be there for a long time, it's not going to have much meaning to the child. And so... It may confuse the situation and not provide much good. 
and nobody can stay in the sixth or any part of the subworld from here very long uh, because you just can't, and the physics is, is allowing it. So you're going to come back, and they're going to be just kind of left there. Could it be a good thing in some circumstances? Maybe. I'll leave that open. I think the kids in the sixth subworld, maybe it's worth a trip because you don't know who they're with, etc. There's also a possibility you could disturb the relationship because the relationships in the sixth subworld are so fragile. The appearance of the natural parent from, from the physical world could upset that relationship and may do more harm than good. You have to consider that. In the higher subworlds, I don't think that would happen, but in the lower ones, it's possible. And you could have the opposite. You could have, in the seventh subworld, a parent who would uh, be unusually resistant to allowing their child to have a visit from a parent, a natural parent. And then that, you got to remember that people who go for, uh, to these subworlds are being affected by the low consciousness there, and why is there a child there in the first place if it wasn't abused while it was here in the physical world? It could be, could be by the way, it doesn't, it doesn't mean it. The parents here were like that, because karma has some stuff to do with this. Sometimes these children go there at such a young age; it has little to do with anything the parents did here. That's why children die at such an early age, because they're overwhelmed with the forces of their own karma. Now they die and are born and die to parents for reasons that the parents have interrelatedly about their karma. That's true too, and so it's a complicated subject. Anyway, it's so fascinating to think about this because there is just an amazing array of differences in terms of relationship. Okay, so <laughs> let's leave that subject alone. When I talk about it, sometimes, you know, I think about and I go back into almost reminiscing about some of my experiences in my head. And, uh, you know, I can remember things that, uh, that I'm not going to talk about. But, uh, you know, it's people that were alone. In some cases, I know who they were, and uh, I know who the parents were. That's of course, I don't go knocking on the doors and say, oh, by the way, I was asked to travel the other day, and I met your daughter or son. And, no, I don't do that. But And I don't do astral traveling at all anymore. But, I mean, this is from decades ago. We're talking about so, uh, But at that time, at that time, I made the decision not to do that, although I did look some people up just to make sure I wasn't having hallucinations or something, like, well, let's see if these people really existed, or, you know, did this kid actually die, or that person actually go over? I did a lot of that kind of research just to make sure I was on the same side of things. But other than that, you know, I, 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 I wasn't about to uh, start getting involved in these kinds of interactional issues between people here and there. I think that's absolutely the wrong thing to do. But I know that psychics do that as a business sometimes and also as a service or service, or both. And some people really find that comforting. But that has never been my role. I'm not psychic. I didn't expect to do that. Okay, so I'm a teacher. The answer on the side of that. 
move on and talk about uh, the next uh, area of ongoing human relationships. What about people who've um, done uh, a few years apart? That's pretty close to that. Um, and let's say that they have been married, have been close together, or they're, you know, they're, they're lovers, or whether they're legally married, it's an issue for them. But, uh, and let's say they die a year apart. Well, depending upon the consciousness of the folks, okay, the relationship factor is considerably different. Let me explain. For people who are, let's use the fourth subworld again, although it is not necessarily, it's the largest, is where more people end up than any place else, but it's not necessarily the whole uh, whole place, which I'm going to have to cover other parts of it. But let's say this fourth subworld, 15 times is the dilation rate approximately. And so you know, let's say someone dies one year, another partner dies the next year, okay, that's 15 years difference in time. Now, for some folks, that's that's not too unreasonable. I mean, you know, you could figure, well, 15 years, uh, can you pick up where you left off? Well, 15 years of changes in consciousness for the person who has been in the astral is the question. Uh, that person now has a different perspective on almost all things that they had be- than what they had before. Just like anyone else in 15 years, your perspective changes. And in the astral world, it changes in ways different than if they were physically alive anyway. In some ways, it can go faster. So the 15 years might be greater than even the years themselves, messenger. So the person who was here in the physical world would go over to the other side and find the person there that they uh, have been, say, they were married to, um, being considerably different because it's been more than 15 years, maybe like 20 years, in terms of changes in consciousness. And they're just way different. Now, does that mean it's not possible for them to continue to have some kind of relationship? Kind of what I have in the past seen is what happens is that the people have to get to know each other again, and usually several years has to go by for the person who... Uh, is the new arrival to gain a bit more consciousness about the world itself they, they're in and to be able to relate to their to their spouse, their prior spouse, uh, in a new way. The new way will be the growth that the new spouse, or the old spouse that they had, had grown into, and the, the new one, new, the new rival spouse is going to have to be contend with. And sometimes it works out, and sometimes it does not. The other possibility, and let's be frank about this, is that the uh, spouse that went over first, even in one year, may have met one or more people that they are, have had relationships with and may not be interested in a form in maintaining the level of relationship that they had while they were uh, physically alive. Now you could say, oh, that's terrible. You know what I mean? But 
got to put it in realistic terms. We're really talking about a change in consciousness of over 20 years between them. And to them, it's just not the same thing. Just think about it. It's like going back for yourself, and I would like you to think about it this way. We've got a time machine, okay? Everybody in the time machine, jump in, come on. And we're going to all go back 20 years ago. And we're going to meet people from 20 years ago and see if we can reconstruct the relationship we had with them at that moment when we <laughs> we had it 20 years ago. Do you really think that's going to work for you? Or for them, possibly. But more likely for you, it's going to work. You probably say, no, put me in the time machine. I want to go back to where I, you know, to, I want to be back to the future here because I don't want to stay over here because these folks aren't at the level of consciousness I am. I can't relate to them anymore. You see what I'm saying. And that's only if you're on the fourth subway. Let's take it to the third subway. Oh, boy. That's, that's getting 18 times. With an increase in consciousness from each year, it could be more like, hmm, one year isn't 18 years, one year might be 30 years. So now our time machine is taking us back 30 years ago. Okay, 30 years ago, you go back to meet the folks you were knowing then and see if you can reconstruct and get back together with one of them. Not likely to happen, huh? That's the issue. That I hope that, that, that example really helped people to see the problem here. And so these are the these are the issues that people have and that I've talked about with people more on a personal level when they have wanted to talk to me about this sort of stuff. Uh, I don't I haven't really given uh, classes on this because it's, I don't know why. I'm not sure. But it's certainly an interesting subject to give classes on it. But, um, I mean, I've talked about this generally, but not this specific. Okay. So, that that does give you pause, doesn't it? I mean, you, you've got to consider this whole thing when you start thinking about what this means in terms of trying to have ongoing human relationships with people when they're separated by the inner planes. And it doesn't matter if you're separated by the inner subplanes of the world itself or by the difference between the astral world and the physical world. Either one could produce almost the same result, depending upon what subplane we're talking about. Two subplanes right next to each other is not as great a problem as three or four subplanes apart from each other in the astral world. That's, that is a big problem. All right, so this, this, is the, this is the strange thing about time and space. It's, it's not just distance in terms of space, it's distance in terms of time that is so critical when, and remember, they're both part of the same thing. So it's truly affecting us in many ways, and we don't realize that these physics effects are really part of our own existence. What we call our combined total consciousness is, in actuality, a physics equation. But it's a complicated one. And it has to do, in part, with this time-space goofiness. But it's other things, too. 
So, now, let's go to some of the other <laughs> interesting elements. About this. What if you're going to... Um, what if you pass on your part, but one person... Well, both people are going to end up in the second astral subplot. That's the uh, spiritual subplot. It's one of the two spiritual subplots. Where there's a difference. And let me explain. When people are... Um, doing spiritual service, okay, their growth of consciousness enormously speeds up. I mean by a factor of 100 times greater than the surrounding folks do. Well, 100 times changes all those time-space constants, and it can equalize a lot of issues. And let me explain why. Let's use this as an example. Let's say the husband goes on to the second astral subworld, the wife remains here. But they both are doing spiritual service, and the spiritual service is at approximately the same level. It doesn't have to be the identical spiritual service, by the way. And they don't have to be doing it together, although that would be a whole other thing that I wrote a book about. But let's just leave it at the simplest levels for right now. Okay. So if they're doing spiritual service at about the same uh, level of consciousness, they are growing at the same level of consciousness. And no matter how much time goes by, all right, you follow me so far, no matter how much time goes by, they could get back together because their consciousness would be equal at the time that they reconnected. Well, a lot of people start saying, whoa, 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 <laughs> say that again. Yeah, and, and, and it does, it, it, as long as it, it involves the spiritual consciousness, it outgrows the, outgrows the difference in the time dilation. For people who are just growing in consciousness that is not spiritual, it doesn't. So the person in the astral subworld um, starts growing in consciousness faster than the person here. But if you're doing spiritual service, that is not truth, then you can equalize the growth of each, I mean, within some limits of each, but still could be close enough so that they could maintain their consciousness. It may or may not be enough. There could be still a split between them enough so that the, the particularly the astral husbands may grow faster than the, than the physical world wife does in the same period of time, causing there to be too great of a difference. But that's all dependent upon a lot of factors, and it's hard to... Consciousness is not something you can just buy in the food store or something. It's what you create, and creation is a unique thing, individual, and so it's hard for two people to be exactly keeping up, Right? If you're together and serving, even if you were physically separated, but if you somehow spiritually served together, your consciousness would exactly match or come very close to that. And then it wouldn't matter how far apart you were. If one is in the first astral subplane and someone is here in the physical world, they could maintain their consciousness together. Wow but they would have to serve together 
Anybody has to have a, some common, almost, way of serving together, which is not an easy thing because there aren't too many things you can do there and do here at the same time, which is different physics, different worlds, on and on and on. Again, I did write a book about this, I know, and it's, you know, it couldn't be done, yes, it can, and that's the reason I wrote about it. And then those people could even die many years apart, it's possible, and still have the same consciousness. And eventually they would share senses together. Oh, come on. No, I'm telling you the truth, yes. <laughs> I know this sounds like, oh boy, this guy's really lost it. There, one person's in the first astral subway, which is like the other side of wherever, and the other person's here and they're going to share their senses together. Yes, they could share their senses together if they are co-serving together a significant amount of each person's day. It's a time model again, but it's the percentage of shared service. And their senses would grow together. They would. So that one would sense what the other was sensing at the same time. <laughs> All right. And so it wouldn't even be like they didn't know what the other one was doing. They would know what the other one was doing more than if they even lived in the same dimension together. That's possible. And then if the, let's use the man and woman, if the wife dies from the physical world and goes to be with the man, uh, it would be like they were never apart. They would all have a continuing relationship together, and they would have, uh, from this particular vantage point, a co-service that would continue on in the astral world and they would have both grown to the same level of consciousness together. Now, this only works if they began pretty darn close in consciousness from the very start. Otherwise, it won't work out. But if if you start off close to the same consciousness, then when you try this connection, it can actually work, and it would possibly be. So when we're talking about being together forever, it's actually... It's not an impossibility, but it's a strange idea. And so, here, let me give myself a little support here. This stuff. Always good to keep those vocal cords vocaling. Okay, so the, the point that is so amazing about this is that uh, it's almost like it's like some sort of Mutual shared immortality, and and we're going to get to the mental worlds in a little bit here, but I mental subworlds. But I, I'm trying to talk about the simplest parts of this, which is the astral part first, because you've got to get this astral part if we're going to get to the mental, and, I, and you're not going to understand anything I'm going to explain to you about that. So we got to get this part so that you can say, I, I think I'm following this guy. Maybe out of his mind, but I'm following him anyway. Okay, so here here's the point. So People that say, well, gee, I really want to be with this person forever. I don't want to just be with them for this physical existence. The only way I know that that can happen is through spiritual service. The other aspects of this are very difficult to achieve and uh, have not the best outcomes. Spiritual service is like magic. It's like it's like the thing that, that can break all the rules, that can go around all of the difficulties, and allow the most impossible to become real impossible and possible between people. That's, that's
amazing. So the human relationships can become forever, virtually, which I call soul relationships. That's what I call the real, <laughs> you know, who is my one and only soul partner forever? Well, there's rare rare circumstances where this could occur, but it means very high levels of spiritual uh, service. And there are a, a number of other elements that come to play, and I'll see what I can cover in the time I have left here. So in these kinds of situations, uh, the people uh, involved, let's assume that they're uh, husband and wife, but they may be, they could theoretically be incredibly close friends. But there is a difference, and let me explain. I'm assuming that the people involved are going to be sexual partners. The reason for that is it makes this whole thing go way better. If they're sexual partners, they can use tantric sexual methods that allows them to connect their bodies in ways that they can't do if they're not. And that will end up making the whole thing more probable or more possible. If they were just friends, which is funny, I'm not saying anything's wrong with friendship, um, the the issue of sexuality comes twofold. First of all, they're not becoming sexual partners. And by that coming, becoming sexual partners, it slows up the connections and this ability to stay connected. But it also means that there's the possibility they would be sexual with others, which would completely disturb the connections that they have from the other kinds of service they're doing together and kind of interfere. So you've got to have kind of this whole thing as a package. I uh, wrote this as a love story and a sexual one. Some people are disturbed by the fact there's sex in a spiritual book. Well, if there wasn't sex in there, I don't know if the story would even work. But even if it didn't work, it was also about sexual problems between the people. It took them a while to work out those sexual problems. It didn't happen overnight. In this, this particular couple, and so the issue here is that the the sexuality uh, should not be, unfortunately, in a parochial way, diminished because, well, sex is sex, and that's not a bad one. No, sex is part of the experience of co-creation with God, and it also is a way of joining together centers between two people, this will only work with heterosexuals, uh, so that they can become uh, spiritually serving better together. That doesn't mean two homosexuals can't spiritually serve or serve together, but not at the same level because the sexual sexual part will not go towards their benefit. But it doesn't mean they still can't serve. They can. But as far as heterosexual people are concerned, this is a big deal. It is probably uh, just as important as some other of the elements of spiritual discipline required to have the kind of spiritual service necessary in order to even come close to doing this almost impossible thing that we're talking about right now. So, and, and this is the reason I'm spending so much time in this is this is probably the biggest thing that people want to know about. They're married, they love each other, they want to be close, they may have a family, and they want to know, can, can we stay together past this life? It's a common question. And I'm giving you as best an answer as I can give. The answer is yes, maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe, and probably not. 
about that for a bunch of answers. So those are the kinds of, yeah, I mean, you could see what, what the complications involved are and why you can't really just say flat out, well, it's this or that. And a lot of it is choice. A lot of it is how are you choosing to live your life, how you've chosen to live your life, how you're choosing to live it now, and uh, what do you want to do if one dies, the other one doesn't, what do you do about that? Okay, and we will talk about people dying together in a minute, but I'm going to finish this part in the astral. Remember, we still got hope. I want to cover some things about the mental. I won't have, I'll leave that for last because I don't know how much time I'm going to have to get there. Okay, so you get, you get into the situation then where if people are truly going to co-serve, the most remarkable things can happen because they can literally elevate the, themselves to the position by this co-service while they're not together to more to speed up the rate of their consciousness development together. And the result will be, instead of serving mostly for the second subworld, they might end up serving there for a brief time and end up in the first subworld for most of their spiritual life. That's just unusual. And uh, that's the astral subworld. And you would, they have uh, amazing lives in, in spiritually serving. The entire astral world itself becomes their domain of service. And they come up with new ways of helping that dimension become more godlike, which it doesn't help, just like we do here as well, by the way. So they can do a lot of good, tremendous amount of good together. And the two is greater than the sum. So you don't get one plus one is two, you get one plus one is 20, you know, kind of effect, with a lot more bang for the buck and a lot more spiritual enlightenment than you would expect otherwise. So that's the good thing about this process. It's so amazingly wonderful. And they can adopt children uh, if necessary or, or, or able to, depending upon the circumstances, if children are available to play when and where. And they can do many other things. And this is the wonderful part about uh, our living in this complicated universe of ours. Let me talk a little bit about pets, just so we can understand this, because people, this is another big subject. People want to know, wow, I got to get to see all the dogs I had. You know? All right. Generally speaking, animals don't live as long as humans do in the astral world. They tend to live life somewhere between one, one and a half times the time they lived here. It's close to the same amount of time. So if they live 12 years here, they'll live 12 years there sometimes. But those 12 years are really years of time that uh, are, are dilated. So they're going to have more time there to live than they have here. Animals really do better living in the afterworld. They, they are used to it. Uh, when they dream, they uh, are, have dreams with more consciousness in them than we do. We have limited or almost no consciousness, and they have greater consciousness than they have as a dog while they're physically alive. How does that happen? Well, it, it has to do with the way the physics work. Uh, they're, they're, they, when they fall asleep, they don't lose their self because they don't have a personality. They grow their self. They have more individual self 
as a dog in the astral, and they have more mobility and freedom to do things. They can speak. They can do all kinds of stuff in most of the subworlds above, uh, at and above the fifth. And they they are amazing. And they can live longer lives in relative time for them, but not longer in time here. So it all depends on the circumstances of where what subplane they are on. Animals that go to like the uh, sixth and seventh subplanes live pretty close to the same amount of years there as they did here. And animals that go to the fifth and fourth, they can live one and a half times or more there. And, and uh, in higher subworlds, they can live like long lifetimes, depending upon how high you go into the subworld, because their consciousness is what keeps them going. Some of them reach a consciousness that's like a human in some respects. And then they live very long lives, and they can do amazing things. They can live almost like a person, because their self is strong enough to do that. They are missing some personable issues. They're not, they don't have a personality. They have a self. But a self without a personality is a little bit strange. They, because they don't have a personality, their self is very individual, but they don't have the, uh, we'll call it, the same control desires and the same desires to stay uh, uh, stay alive. Their, their perspective is that they are there for experiential aspects of growth rather than to preserve themselves. So when you meet an animal in the astral world, it wants to have all kinds of experiences with you that uh, leads it to a higher level of self. It has very little concern about its own death and very little fear about it because it doesn't have a personality, but it does have a self. It's a very strange thing. And... Most people do not understand this relationship with animals in the astral world. So when they go to the astral world and they have pets there, which I call pets, they don't fully understand the nature of the animals. They know the animals communicate with them through thought, and they can speak effectively, especially from the fifth subplane up. That's true. And in some cases, the animals do quite well. In the third subworld, they've invented all kinds of gadgets that allows the animals to speak I think is well or better than some people do. You can communicate with them as clear as you can to most other people. That's how clear they speak. Uh, it's augmented by, we'll say, artificial means, but it still works. At any rate, those, and some of those means are about to take place here in the physical world. We're going to. I talked about technologies coming. I didn't finish the subject in an exhaust. We're going to see technologies in the next ten. 15 years, where we'll be able to talk to our dogs and cats. Well, they'll be cute. And you'll hear all kinds of interesting stories. But at any rate, going back to the astral nature, so dogs and cats have a different experience, and so do some other pets. Uh, uh, and their, their, their relationship with people is of an odd way, uh, because the people keep trying to, uh, oftentimes, in the beginning of their life in the astral world, to recreate the structure of interactions as they had in the physical world, and the, the animals just don't relate to that. And so you have to start dealing with the animals in a very different way, or they just leave. They only involve themselves with people who want to have experiences with them that help grow their self. 
if you don't want to do that, if you just want to have an animal that rides around the house all day, uh, you better not expect to have a, a, a pet in the uh, astral world, at least not one that has very high consciousness, because that won't that just won't work. Uh, but if you go there and you say, well, let's go and have some experiences and let's uh, you know, go do a discovery of this or that and let's learn something, they can learn, they can communicate, they can interact. If you treat them more like you would a child, then, and a child that is not personable but self, that has a high, high, fairly high development self and wants to grow more of it, then you'll do just fine with them. But it is different, very, very different. So people want to know, can I can I go and meet the dog I had if I die soon after? You know, I know about your dilation, right? so I know the dog may not be there very long, but it will be there long enough. Can I go meet the dog if it's recent? What if the dog dies with me? Okay. Well, again, yes. The answer is yes. If you go to the same sub-world, you'll most likely find the dog or it'll find you. But uh, it may not want to stay with you depending upon your ability to change your perspective from a personal involvement with the dog where it's your pet and instead an interactional uh, development of self where yourself and their self are interacting together so the dog gets new experiences and grows itself and if you're willing to do that kind of relationship, you'll potentially find that dog, although it may not stay with you or it may already be with someone else, but it may also hang around you too. And the animals are, make their own decisions about that. And they have a strong enough self-structure, so you can't really control them the way you could here because they don't react to the, um, to the human in the same way. That consciousness is high enough so that I can say, I'm doing my own thing. You don't want to get too bad. <laughs> I like that. Okay, okay so, and so, so you know, in, in a story I wrote, uh, this one dog kept running away. <laughs> it didn't like the people that it was involved with. They were too restrictive in their consciousness. And so it uh, ran into the character, one of the characters in the book, that said, hey, I'm with you, boy. I'm going. <laughs> Let's go. And they go off and have experiences, and they don't, the dog has no remorse. It doesn't care anything about the loss of the family. As far as it's concerned, goodbye. But the family still believes that they own the dog. But the dog said, you can't own me. <laughs> and they got into a bit of a problem with that. It was eventually resolved. And it just so happens that some people don't understand that in, in the astral uh, subworlds, particularly some parts of the fifth and certainly in the sixth and seventh, they still want to possess these things. And they still think that they have a personal right to own a dog or a cat or a bird. But not the astral world, you don't. You see, the astral world is made up of people with their own rights created by their own consciousness. you got enough consciousness, you can create your own existence. Interesting idea. Another squirt of this stuff. Okay. My voice should come back now. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, that's 
that's an interesting idea. And uh, we just need to change our expectations if we're going to have relationships that are uh, going to be in the astral world, because they will not be the same with some things as we're used to. Even plants have some level of consciousness. Be aware of that. It's minimal, but uh, some exist. And you could even have, believe it or not, an interaction with a plant. Now, is it going to uh, dance with you? Probably not. Although in the book I wrote about it, the mushroom danced. But uh, the, the important thing is not kind of tap dancing, but they kind of moved around. But the thing is that the the idea here is that things are more, not less, animated. We think of animals by their very name as being animated and plants not. But because all animation is vastly increased in the astral world, even the plants that normally are not animated have some level of animation to them. So they're getting closer to animals. And they're, maybe we'll call them plantables or something like that, you know, someday. So be aware that that humans can relate to things that normally they can't relate to here in the physical world. And those things can also relate to the human. Now, whether that's a good or bad thing depends upon how the human perceives it and how those things that one relates to don't want to relate to humans do. But it is a different kind of place at any rate. And in addition to everything else that I just said, it's also important to realize that uh, lifetimes are so very long that people are in a continual state of, we'll call it, growth and change. If people aren't there for mostly spiritual reasons, then their growth and change is oftentimes growing their self, mostly their lower self, but maybe some higher self with it, uh, at fantastic rates. They may learn to do things they never even dreamed of while they're physically alive. They may have interests in all kinds of areas that they originally didn't even have a clue about while they're physically alive. So the enrichment of life is but again, the experience of physical life is gone. And the contribution of being physically alive is also lost. So in order to be creative in the astral world, you have to do things of significant value in correct ways to make them last any significant period of time because it can easily be changed by others because the whole world is so easily changeable by just creative imagination. However, Spiritual things can grow and last very long periods of time in the astral. So if you are a spiritual person, the things you create there can be amazingly great, and they don't go away that easily. They stay around for a very long time. So astral creations of spiritual things are really the ticket if you want to do something quite meaningful and make a difference for all the folks that are there and all the interactions with friends that you might make. In general, friendships in the astral world tend to be a little flighty because people are growing and changing a lot. 
So if you were to average it back again to this fourth subworld, people know a lot of people, people interact quite a bit, but they may not maintain close friendships throughout their entire life because their life could be like 15 to 1, and if they're going to be there, say, 30 years, it's 450. If they're going to be there 50 years, well, 50 times 15, it's 750 years, right? That's a long time for people. And they may not maintain the friendships because both are growing, but they're growing not necessarily always the same way. It isn't like the two spiritual people that are growing together. They may be growing, but they're not, they may grow at times apart. They're not enemies. But they may not de- depend. They may not have the closest friendships for the longest periods of time. In the mundane parts of the spiritual of the uh, astral world, people have sometimes a dozen different marriages. Now, why is that? Well, they're not married to twelve people at the same time. I want you to think that they still are monogamous, but they may be only stay married for twenty, thirty, forty years at a time. Now, that's not so unusual. We do that here. But the problem is there. They don't die. They just move on. Now, you say, well, do they go through a divorce? Do they get an official partner? Now, you see, that that whole idea doesn't make much sense there. For people who don't have a spiritual union, they don't keep growing together. And so they may only stay together for that, let's say, 50 years. That's fine for them. 50-year marriage is a good marriage, right? And then they say, well, it's time to go do another thing. Especially if they have children, they've maybe raised a couple of different groups of kids in that time, and they're gone. And they're on to doing something else. I I mean, this is not a, a terrible thing. It's the way the place is. Now, if people, for people who live in the two spiritual subworlds, that's a different thing. They can stay together, and they do oftentimes for all the time they're there. And they don't have multiple, you know, like uh, serial uh, monogamies where they go from one to the next. That's unusual, actually. They, what they do is they stay together. And that's because they grow together through their spiritual service, and they, they their consciousness is getting closer, not more distant, by doing spirit things. That's how it works. Now, is is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it all depends. Uh, for some people, they might say that's wonderful. And for people who are less, we'll say, conscious, no, that wouldn't be so great for them. They prefer every 50 years getting a new model or something, or maybe every 70 years, whatever their combination of numbers are. And they find the people they want to be with, and they do that for that long. And sometimes they don't, they aren't with anybody for a while or for a long time. The astral world is a different experience from here. It isn't about mores, and it isn't about so much people listening to religious tenets or beliefs. All that stuff kind of breaks down because to the folks there, they're beyond that. They're closer to God, they, and they probably are, by the way. And they have a different kind of relationship with their creator. Their relationship is their creator is more exposed to them, and they see it more all around them. They can understand it better. They don't need the interpretations of a religion necessarily. It doesn't mean people don't have religions. They do. But it isn't 
listen, don't listen to it anyway. And it wouldn't apply to their life. Here we live with forces and restrictions and short lives and hard lives and gruesome deaths. Religion here gives us a completely different way of interpreting that kind of life. But there's no need for a religion to interpret the afterlife. It's in your face, and you create it yourself for the most part. And unless you're in the six or seven subworlds, it doesn't mean much to have a religiously controlled or understood life. It just plain is not needed. It doesn't mean people don't get together and worship in some ways along certain avenues of expression. They do. Some do with angels' wisdom itself, which is not a religion, but they take aspects of it and apply it. Some of the religions are doing that. But the point is what they're really, they're really kind of concerned with is a different way of relating to God than in the physical world, because nothing about the physical world virtually is the same in the astral world. It's a different place. And so people live a different kind of life and have different ongoing relationships. All right, so is there anything wrong with the relationship that lasts 50, 60, 70 years with, with the same person as his spouse? Not that I know where of, because if there's something wrong with it, then every, there's something wrong with everybody's relationship who's personally alive physically, right? That's, the, that's about what you're going to expect as your, as your relationship. It's not any different for people in the astral world. There, they just have a choice about it. Here, we don't. Okay, so <laughs> let's kind of finish some of this, and we'll, we'll maybe jump back and forth. The the other thing to be concerned about or think about is this: if you um, if you die together here, and you go on to the astral world, people don't necessarily stay together in the mundane parts. With mundane parts, is third to seventh astral sub. sub um, because uh, they may comfort each other and be, uh, you know, uh, stay together for a while in the astral world, but oddly, just because they die together does not mean that they stay together very long. Some may stay together five, ten, twenty years, and or less, and they, they, that's it. Especially if they've lived a long life together here in the physical world. So death together is, does not mean that people live or stay together in the astral world. Even if they think that that's what they want before they physically die, it, it doesn't work out that way from my observations um, in the astral world. It's just not, uh, not part of what goes on in the most part. And so that's the odd thing about it. You know, when we're here, we have one thought process. We go there, we have a completely different one, and it's just the way it is. Now, in the spiritual subworld, it's kind of the opposite. If people were to have died together, not everybody does, by the way, it's kind of more rare than common, but if they were to die together and go to the astral subworld, they might just stay together for a very long, if not indefinite period of time, because they're spiritually serving. Spiritual service just changes the nature of life itself. You're growing not your smaller self, 
you're not doing all these little bits and pieces of learning a new thing or this or that and create this or that and do it. You're actually just continuing to grow in your higher self. And the higher self growth now is about co-creation with God and helping everybody else to be their soul while you are one. And two souls working together, it's absolutely beautiful. It is the epitome, as far as I'm concerned, and I think that it's what most people really do want, but they are too selfish to get to the full expression of it because their own selfishness and other fears come into play and prevent it from actually occurring. It's a shame. But it does take place that way more often than not. Let's take a little break from the astral world. We'll go to the, the mental world because... Uh, the mental world is a very complicated issue. It's not it, it's, uh, straightforward. It, when people go to the mental world, the first thing they need to do is overcome the selfishness in their kind of thinking. What kind do they think in? They usually think in an unwhole or untruthful way. That often leads them to egotism, which is kind of a barrier to other people's thought and thinking that you're right and never be. You may not think they're wrong, but you don't care. Don't worry, I shouldn't say that. You do think, you think you're right, and you think they're more likely wrong, but you do care. You do care about how they think to some extent. If you're arrogant, then you don't care about how they think at all. <laughs> you care less about it. Only your thought matters. Sort of a slip. But anyway, when people get into egotism, egotism is part of a lot of people's life especially since we're the fifth of the fifth sub, we're fifth sub race and the fifth race. And that's where people become the most egotistical in general. In any world, this is true. Earth, I think, has a peculiar need to be, or wanting, or people choosing to be egotistical. Okay. So what's the problem with that? Well, a good amount of time in the mental world is spent overcoming our egotism and or arrogance. And that time is spent completely isolated from all other residents of the mental subworld we're in. We might meet a few angelic beings, a few great serving beings, but generally, other than those beings, we don't meet other human beings that are alive in the mental world until we're over our own egotism. The reason for that is the egotism itself is bands of energy that blocks us from being able to sense anybody else in that world. Only beings that can break through that egotism through their own super light can even have contact with us. And they do it in service to us if we're there for our egotism and we get over it. It can take dozens to hundreds of years to overcome the egotism. So the problem is, if you can imagine this complicated thing I just described to you, this happens in four different subworlds, and sometimes you go back and forth between two, any two of them, and it gets complicated back and forth, and you're stuck alone. Well, if you're stuck alone, even if you were together with someone for a while, let's say in the fourth subworld, well, when that fourth subworld body wears out and you go on to the astral world, Let's say you wanted to stay together with the same person or people. Or we had some friends there. You wanted to have keep your relationships going with them. You got a problem. 
Because how do you relate to those folks if you're going to be for 100 years dealing with your own egotism and vice versa? You're not. Wow. Tell me that isn't an issue. All right, so that's one of the biggies that most people don't know about. But, of course, tonight we're talking about not going human relationships on the inner plane, so I'm going to talk about it, right? All right, I'll try to put this in simple a fashion as possible so that I don't confuse people. The mental world, some worlds are very confusing because you don't even stay on the same one all the time. It's just kind of a, a, a hard thing to understand. It's all controlled by how you think. Your world is created by the thought forms that you create about the world you experience. You create these thought forms yourself. So uh, just like the astral world is created by how you feel and, and your creative imagination, your, thought, your, your, your mental world experience is created by your mental concepts that are then converted into thought forms and how those thought forms as examples of everything that you want to create in the world are manifested. If they're all manifested by uh, your own belief that other people's thought doesn't matter, well then that's all you got to do live with is your own thought. But when you have only your own thought, you can't create anything new. And the reason for that is that everything you would create requires some improvement in your thought, which cannot be improved upon because you refuse to accept anything new in your thought except that which you come to by your own conclusions and thinking. And the only way to get to that point is through your past thinking. You lose your future. You can't live in the future. And there's three parts of time you live in in the mental world, and you immediately, when you get there, lose the ability to live in the future by your own egotism then that leaves you only the present and the past. The past is a thing called the uh, Akasha. There's a kind of astral Akasha. It's a bunch of nonsense. It's mostly uh, fantasies for people. But the mental Akasha is, is real thought of each person from their past life that they can go into and experience and try to create something different from. That's, what, that's the only creation they've got going for them, so they are bored to death if they don't. And so, and I mean to death, because if they keep doing it until they would just wear that part of their body out. And they do it in four different subworlds. But they do it until the exhaust sense, senses in one subworld and go to another one to use that one. And usually they're adjoining and you can go back and forth for a while. And so this whole kind of system is, is nutty. But in the meantime, you're not having any relationships other than with people in your past that you are going back to try to create something different, because that's the only new creation you can have, that is also better than your responses were in the kind of thought that you were using, which is what egotistical in the past. So you're constantly going back into the past to try to create better relationships with people from your past. And your life is spent years and years and years, a hundred years, maybe more, going over your past experiences with people, usually. And you're interacting with them. But you're interacting with them, hopefully, trying to create a, an improved,
had with them. Their reactions to you are constructed from the changes in your own thoughts. Do they really exist? Well, they existed in the past. And during the time you go back, it's like they really are there. And they are coming from the other thought forms that they had in the past. And their reaction to you changes as your reaction changes to them. So the past is constantly in a state of change, improvement, to a less egotistical one than the one that was originally there. Wow. And we talk about this Akashic experience as a level of truth. At the present time in the mental world, it averages around 65-70% of truth. That's it. Because you're, that, that's the only amount that has been collected to that level between the quote-unquote lies that people created between themselves because of their own egotism. So as you create more truth in your egotism, the relationship with the people from your past is changing as well with their thoughtfulness from the past. It's a little hard to understand. This is really hard. You've got to wrap your head around something that for human beings is extremely difficult to understand time and space. It's just one of the hard ones. You're really in the past and you're really dealing with people's thoughts in the past and you're interacting with your thought, with their thought, and their thought is changing as your thought is. And it's not just changing for you, it's changing for anyone else that is doing the same thing that may know those same people, yes, from the past perspective. Now, those people actually could be obviously having other thoughts in the present and the future. And they may not be in the Akasha while you are. But that doesn't change anything. But the weird thing about it is, as their thought from the past gets improved because of your egotism reacting better with their egotism and reducing both, they can think better in the present and the future. Even though they're not interacting with you. So your human relationships when you go into this experience of improving yourself in the past, in the Akasha of the mental world, is improving everybody's thinking for the entire planet you're on, which is Earth, um, for the entire subworld you're on, which is the mental world, and sometimes beyond that subworld for the whole lower mental world. And eventually, it has a, an advantage for souls, which we'll get to. Whoa, this is like far out there. Is it hard to understand? Absolutely. What I'm describing for you, few people have even ever thought of, and there's been absolutely, that I've ever read, no explanation of except for what I've explained. Because it's so difficult to comprehend this reality, which is real, but it's beyond our understanding because it's it, we, we don't virtually understand anything about our mental body. Okay, so part of the experience of the of the of the mental world is the full dimension of time, and people can live in different parts of it. And people 
are affected by the past, even though they're living in the present and or future. And as the past is improved, because everybody that goes there is improving the past during these Akashic experiences, before they get enough sense to be able to communicate with people in the present and the future. So while they're doing that, they're, they're paying like a, they're paying back a debt. The debt is their egotism has disturbed the thought of other people. And for a long time, they do this. The more egotistical they were, the more time they spend doing this. I've known some people that have spent 500 years doing this, about the record. And it's a very long time. Now, these are mental plane years. The mental plane, unlike the astral plane, is, is much, much more dilated in time. So it, it goes up you know, 36 times. It just keeps growing until you get to, like, in the lower mental world, like 90 times. The, what it is here in this world. It's a huge boomer. So a few years there of our time is, it could be a few hundred years in your time. I hope you understand what I said. Okay, so they're trying to interact to get rid of their egotism, but it's service to all the other people, all the other people they interacted with. It's done automatically in this thing called the Akasha. The way the Akasha works are things are connected together by thought, not by time itself. It's hard to understand this, but when you go through the Akasha, you're, the same egotism you used when you're 5 and 9 and 15 and 30 and 60 attaches events at those times together, and that's what you experience is the same kind of egotistical thought in those time periods. And that's where you interact with people, sometimes the same, but most of the time different people. And those interactions, you're trying to correct yourself, so they correct themselves, and they will change their responses in relationship to your responses in terms of the mental body. As the mental body senses become clearer, the communication becomes clearer between the people and something called truth evolves from it. Actually, the first thing that evolves is wisdom. Wisdom is the wholeness of the thought in time and space, meaning that as you're less egotistical, you have more whole time and space between you and everybody else. Then you become wise. But, it, but the result of applying the wisdom into different situations, remember you're trying to create something new. The new creation is truth. That's the virtue or light of the mental world. So you're helping other people to become wiser, while you become wiser, and while you, you're becoming wiser, and if you're helping other people and to want to and desire to help them, that's called love wisdom, and then that produces truth. That's the whole process, how it works. Most people in the Akasha eventually do that. The people who are arrogant have a very, very hard time doing this, because they never get past just the wisdom part, and they can't seem to give anything because it's so selfish in terms of giving because they were quite selfish astrally as well as mentally in the past. They don't have any astral body anymore, but they still react to their mental body as though they did. And so they're kind of fixated. They're not wanting to help people. So their thing is to get rid of their egotism, but not particularly help anybody else get rid of theirs. 
so that's that's like a barrier to them really getting past a certain point. So you, you try to help people who are arrogant like that. Some people who are egotistical, when they had an astral body, also had a desire to be in control and be important and special. That only wrecks or it further it, it hurts the way the uh, mental body is responsive. And it, it it causes a thing called a common-monastic connection, which even though they don't have an astral body anymore, if they're dead from the astral world, the common-monastic connection's effect still is on the mental body, and it's very resistant to change because of this connection. Most people still have it. And it makes this whole process very tedious and slow. But nonetheless, the changing on the mental body through the Akashic experience, which can take hundreds of years in mental time, is a very great uh, service. And it's a service uh, that's approaching a soul level of service. When someone completes the process and they get they wake awaken to all the other people living in the mental world, they're much more soul like. You can't believe how open minded how they don't represent a mind that is closed to everybody else and that diminishes the the, the, the minds of other people and thinks that the minds of other people are, 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 are unimportant because their mind is all matters, you know, that kind of stuff. And they recognize the importance of everybody's thoughts. And they relish it. They relish other people are doing great. They, they don't have any hidden... Uh, hidden, we'll call it, uh, insecurities about having a great mind. They are open to the fact that their mind works wonderful and they love the fact that everybody else's mind works wonderful. There's none of that kind of nonsense going on. And they are, uh, they're beautiful. They are becoming soul-like. So the process of getting over these four different sub-worlds of egotism leads a person to becoming their soul. It allows them to have a much richer mental life. Their relationship then becomes one of doing some soul-like things in thought forms, not so much in concepts. But they do use concepts, and they are creating some, but not a lot of brand new ones. And they're interacting together now in a way that is so incredibly wise and loving together. And so, we'll say, increasing the level of truth between them, meaning that for the moment, what they create can be applied to almost any circumstance and will come out with good results in terms of the mind's ability to conclude and think and come up with causal uh, realities, which means that cause and effect come together and there's no contradiction. That's true. And so you get this kind of amazing effect between people that leads them to very, very, very close relationships. We talked about stuff in the astral world, and the level of closeness that people can achieve in the astral world is the highest is in the first astral subworld of co-service. We talked about that. But that's not based upon this same level of truth. It's based upon uh, a, a convincingly high level of what called uh, soul love. Because they're so soul loving, they're in great shape. Some of them have higher levels of truth as well, because they're spiritual serving. You gotta kinda of, kinda of have a little bit of both or somewhat of both. 
But in the mental world, the, the love part is already part of the truth. And so you don't have to worry so much about that, and it isn't really the prominent issue. The prominent issue is that co-serving in truth together allows a new kind of relationship. The truth becomes a kind of light that leads the, per- the people to become so other-directed as to no longer be concerned about whether or not um, their giving is the issue. So they don't have to be concerned about that. The only thing that is the issue is how much light there is in the mental bodies of others. That's the whole called meaning in their existence. And when the light between the two of them reaches the approximate same level in a high level of service, the closeness between them has to do with a buddhic result, not a result in the soul, which is on the higher mental world, in the higher mental world, because they'll, they'll rejoin that soul and they'll give that to the soul when they get it. But it immediately affects the buddhic world. And it doesn't matter if you do this in the physical, astral, or mental world. If you can get to this level of truth development between you and your partner, say, or you and the closest person to you, the result will be that you start developing your buddhic bodies together. Another new kind of experience, something I can't go into tonight because we're going to run out of time, but it, it produces a new kind of relationship while you're still human being, which will later have to do with when you're a member of the next kingdom and how you relate to all the people you're being there. So, but for people in the, in the lower mental world, some of them start to serve in very, very high levels of service. In, not other, but dozens, by the way. It's a small group that are really spiritual disciples, spiritual servants who've been doing it together for a while. And some of them do it as a group, and some of them do it as individuals, and some of them do it as connected uh, partners, if, they're, if they're, they have been lovers. And the results are, in every one of those cases, a different kind and way of building their Buddha bodies that transpires in this interconnection. So the building of the Buddha body is amazingly important because that is what leads to the next kingdom. So you're not only going to go back to your soul and contribute a great deal of this stuff you did in the lower mental world that was service. That is true to the soul. The soul is in the, in the higher mental world. At the same time, you're building the buddhic body of your future incarnates as well as you. That buddhic body is, is consistent to all incarnates. They all become part of that. And therefore, you are becoming something greater than a human being because you're out, you're out thinking, out creating, you're out becoming something more than human. And that sustains, that never goes away. So this new Buddhic part of you that grows is becoming an immortal part of you even as an incarnate in your next life, and then you're gradually becoming a member of the next kingdom, which is also part of the whole process of initiation, etc. A little bit more than what I can explain here, but you can see how amazingly important mental plane life is 
to not only our soul in the mental world, which is the higher mental world, but to a part of us that is superhuman in the Buddha and a part of our solar angel as well. This is so amazing. And uh, human relationships in these worlds build us, not just, not just the individual, which is part of it, but additionally the group, and if you are connected to another person, so doing this as a lover, it's even greater. Literally, when you make love, you help create everybody else's Buddha body. You grow that because that's how the Buddha world works. Some amazing stuff can start happening in this process of, uh, we'll say, developing truth that eventually becomes beauty. The process of moving from truth to beauty is, is, is the process of moving from an individual to an individual that is also part of an enlightened group. There's, there's like a new kind of dimensionality to the entire process, and it leads to uh, a, a fundamental difference between humanity and superhumanness. Humanity has a personality. The personality is a limitation. It's a necessary limitation to keep us alive and secure and in control of ourselves, of ourselves, while we're under the most forceful, stressful circumstances in the lower, lower worlds of existence. But once you have mastered those lower worlds, you don't need a personality anymore, and you don't have one, because it's part of your soul. And the last one is you. And you no longer are limited by it. It's extremely limiting. It's like carrying around a ball and chain most of the time. And so that personality going away is really a freedom, a freedom to become something so much greater, so much more wonderful that you can interact and share with us, that the relationships on the inner planes are like a whole other dimension. Well, this is the ultimate to, for a human being. Other dimension is to bring about this mental plane transformation from truth to beauty. Beauty allows us to improve everybody's senses at the same time rather than to try to do it on an individual basis through just one person at a time through the more limited virtue of truth and what a lot of people call love, giving wisdom, love wisdom. So you move from that to this gigantic, phew, now you can do it for millions instead of for one at a time. And it's a, that's a tremendous improvement in efficiency of creating God. It's about how to do it in mass instead of just for only individuals. It doesn't prevent you from being an individual. It doesn't prevent you from doing it for individuals, but it allows you to do it above for all as is needed. That's what beauty is. It's the ability to do it by improving the senses of all. And when you improve the senses of all, you improve the awareness, which is what senses give, and from awareness you become all knowledgeable. 
eventually the senses are perfected, then you have a thing called omniscience or all knowledge. And that's where beauty ends. The maximum value of beauty is the ultimate in, we'll say, knowledge, which is omniscience, which is the top of beauty in the Buddha world. And that's what the outcome is for those who go through the mental world experience at the highest level of spiritual service possible. That's what their relationships are about. Well, you know what? Uh, yeah, I've done it. I know I ran out of time is what I did. There are a couple of things I wanted to cover. We didn't quite get to them. But we did cover the ongoing human relationships on the inner planes, and I think that I've told you a lot more about them than ever you've heard from anyone at any time. So that may be true, and if it isn't, you let me know. Tell me who's telling more. That's okay. I'll, I'll listen. I'd like to know. So we're out of time for right now. I hope this has been an interesting show. It's been, a, been interesting for me. And until next week, this has been Niles McFlower for Why Life Is.